Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites with just one click. Then, their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, Moth listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com moth. That's ZipRecruiter.com moth. One more time to try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com moth. You're listening to the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Jay Allison, producer of this show, and we're bringing you a live event which took place at Lincoln Center's Alice Tully Hall and was produced in collaboration with the World Science Festival. Here's your host, Adam Gopnik. When I asked our next, our last storyteller, Sylvia Earle, uh, what had been the last thing to rock her boat she said, and this is the attitude we all should have, that what she was thinking about was the next thing that would rock her boat. She had gone past the last things that would rock her boat. And that the things that she was looking forward to was her next trip where she'd be able to study the aquatic culture 2,000 feet, was that right? 2,000 feet approximately. Deep, deep is the concept here. (laughs) Deep below the sea and that She's led a life that's not about remembering the last boat rocking, but looking forward always to the next boat rocking. Will you welcome, please, Sylvia Earle. I was knocked over by a wave when I was three years old, and the ocean got my attention. And it has held my attention ever since. But it wasn't just the ocean, all that water, and the joy of rocking around in the waves. It's life in the ocean. So it was natural that I become a biologist. And over the years, studying biology, I think I was ready, as a botanist, actually, at Duke University on my way to earning a PhD when I was asked if I would be willing to go for six weeks to the Indian Ocean as a botanist, irresistible. An ocean botanist at that because my specialty has been and is still seaweeds, (laughs) those lovely plants, the photosynthesizers in the ocean. So, it was only after I actually got on board and arrived in Kenya, Mombasa. A newspaper writer interviewed the science team and we poured our hearts out. There were 12 of us who were really charged with exploring the Indian Ocean from the deck of a National Science Foundation funded ship, the Anton Brun. This was my first experience with newspaper interviews. 
Nobody expected the headlines the next day, but there they were, Sylvia sails away with 70 men. Huh. <laughs> the subtitle, but she expects no problems. <laughs> I'm not sure what kind of problems they were expecting, but we did have a really big problem, all of us. We were on a little boat on the top of the ocean. The ocean average depth is two and a half miles and life all the way, maximum depth, seven miles. And we had to assist us with exploring the ocean, hooks, nets, dredges, trawls, the things that you can lower from the deck of a ship into the unknown depths below. Imagine trying to understand New York City. Imagine aliens coming here up in the sky with clouds obscuring the view below, lowering hooks, dragging through the streets, <laughs> taking little bites out of New York City. <laughs> and trying to figure out what's going on here anyway, <laughs> based on the little fragments that they would be able to examine. Well, that's the way it is with the ocean, even today. Only about 10% of the ocean has been seen at all, and it dominates the planet. That's where 97% of Earth's water is, and of course, water is the key to life. Well, fast forward a bit. 1969, when the first footprints were being put on the moon. I was at Harvard at the time and saw a notice on the board asking for those scientists who wished to participate in an experiment living underwater as aquanauts. Aquanauts, I mean, astronauts were big news. <laughs> so the appeal of being able to use the ocean as a laboratory by actually living in the ocean, diving, and staying underwater, getting to know life by you know, being in the middle of the action. It's, I mean, people do it on the land all the time. If you want to understand a desert, you go to the desert. If you want to understand life in the forest, you go explore the forest, and you can stay there for long periods of time if you choose to do so. But to go into the ocean, living 50 feet underwater, to be able to go outside and really use the ocean, as your laboratory, what a concept. So, I put in my application, never expecting what happened next. No one expected women to apply. There were no women astronauts in 1969, 1970, not until the mid-1980s. All those footprints on the moon are made by guys. <laughs> it's okay, <laughs> they're people too, you know. <laughs> But the head of the program, James Miller, had to decide, because I wasn't the only woman who applied, and those who did had qualifications that were, you know, they were okay, <laughs> on a par with the men who applied. And he said he thought about it, and really considered it, because there were some objections. Oh, were there ever some objections? <laughs> but he said, well, Half the fish are female. <laughs> half the dolphins, half the whales. I guess we could put up with a few women. Well, remember this is 1970 when this program finally came into, into action. Hanky-panky on the reef. Oh, what would people think if you have men and women living together underwater? So, 
They made an all-women's team, which made headlines. It was a little <laughs> off-putting when you think about it, that people were, were so excited about the thought that there would be a woman's, women's team. No real attention made to, me to all of the, there were nine teams of just guys and one team of women, but the women got all the press. They wanted to know, oh, did you wear lipstick? Um, did you have a hair dryer? <laughs> but mainly, mainly, uh, they wanted to know what it was like to live underwater. And this idea of women living underwater seemed to light a lot of fires because we got a lot of attention. Ticker tape parade down State Street. We had a luncheon at the White House after our two-week stay underwater. People just wanted to know, what's it like? I was faced with microphones, not just one, a whole bevy of microphones. So I did try to share the view, wrote for the National Geographic, told about how these beautiful silver car tarpon came and, and swam uh, with a full moon silhouetting them. And that even in the dark, there was light because their bioluminescence swimming at night around our underwater home was like swimming through stars. And here's the thing. Mm. I got to know the fish. I got to know them as individuals. And there were five angelfish that came from different places after they slept, got up really early. I got up really early to watch them. They'd gather together, and they'd pal around the reef all day. And at night, they'd go their separate ways. Little butterfly fish would team up. Well, <laughs> they apparently do stick together, mate for life. By two and two and two, you'd see these little butterfly fish. You know, like some people, they mate for life. <laughs> go figure. And <laughs> there was a big, beautiful, green moray eel. We couldn't resist. We called him Puff, like Puff the Magic Dragon. He, he was there at night when we would make our excursions. It was just a transformation for me, because I'd seen fish before diving in and out, up and down. Casually see grouper and snapper, but this time I got to meet that grouper, that snapper, that eel, that parrotfish, those parrotfish that gathered the, together. I'd also seen plenty of fish swimming with lemon slices and butter, <laughs> haven't you all? <laughs> but the idea of seeing them with new eyes and realizing that everyone is different, I could recognize them. Their faces are different, their spots were different, their attitudes were different. Call it personality, if you will. Some were shy, some were aggressive, but they, they were all part of this immense system, a coral reef where I was a visitor and, and getting to know what life was about. Well, all right, fast forward to 2012. I had a chance to go back to the same place the underwater laboratory had been removed, but I was reflecting on, before I took the plunge to see what it was like after 42 years, what had happened to the world in 42 years, what had happened to me. I had the opportunity to dive in many places around the world. I actually helped foster new technologies to be able to explore the ocean, to stay underwater, to enjoy the gift of time. 
by helping to build, design and build, little submarines so simple to drive that even a scientist can do it. Huh. <laughs> Living proof. <laughs> 1970 to 2012, it's been a seismic shift in attitude, in scientific discoveries. You, you just reflect on how far humankind has come in just a few decades. We have taken the ocean for granted, thinking, oh, we can use the ocean as a place to put things we don't want close to where we are. And the ocean, it's so big, it's so vast, we can take out of it whatever we want, no problem. The ocean, the ocean is too big to fail, we thought in 1970. Now we know. <laughs> and there I was, perched on the edge of a little boat, looking at the place where the Tektite laboratory had been, ready to take the plunge, and I wondered, I wonder if that eel is still here, because, you know, fish, can live a long time. Sharks can be as old as any of us, or older. Older than your grandparents, some of them. Was that big grouper? Oh, I love that big Nassau grouper. Was, could I, where was he? I mean, I knew where he used to be. Armed with these hopes, I took the plunge. And it was a, it was a ghost town. I suppose if this had been my first dive. If I hadn't known what it was like 42 years before, I would have thought, oh, this is kind of beautiful. The water's clear. There's some of these big, lumpy boulder corals. They're kind of still there. I don't, none of those branching staghorn and elkhorn corals that they used to write about and talk about. But, you know, I see fish. Well, yeah, little damselfish, a few. One little tiny grouper. But basically, it had been stripped of most of the creatures that I had come to know and use as part of my understanding, the baseline of understanding about what the ocean should be, what coral reefs should be, these thriving, vibrant communities of life. A lot of bad news, it would seem, but here's the good news. Not far from where the Tektite Laboratory was situated and where I found this disappointing scene, there's a place called Buck Island that in 1961 was protected by President Kennedy and ever since is associated with a national park on the land, the national park extended into the sea. Diving there is like diving 50 years ago. It's amazing. Protection works. This is the centennial of national parks. Some say it's the best idea America ever had. Well, it's certainly a good idea. And now blue parks are beginning to catch on. Around the world, nations, including our nation, the United States, is beginning to step up and not only embrace more of the land, but with blue parks. As of this time last year, 1% of the ocean had protection for the creatures that live there, where even the fish and the lobsters and clams and oysters were safe. Huh. Now we have 2%. Still not very much if you think that the ocean is the blue heart of the planet that makes our lives possible, but it's a trend in the right direction. We doubled it in a year. There's plenty of reason for hope. What is going to be our story, your story, those of us who are around 
early in the 21st century. We have a choice. We can protect nature. We can save the natural world. And nature can save us. Now's the time. Let's do it. Sylvia Earle. National Geographic Society Explorer in Residence, Sylvia A. Earle is an oceanographer, author, and lecturer who's been called a living legend by the Library of Congress and hero for the planet by Time Magazine. Earl has led more than 100 expeditions and logged more than 7,000 hours underwater, including setting a record for solo diving in 1,000-meter depth. The Moth's artistic director, Catherine Burns, had a chance to sit down with Sylvia. Now, they, they called the men aquanauts, but what did, how do they refer to you guys in some of those headlines? Occasionally, the women were referred to as aquanauts, but more often, well, I don't know, the press, people just couldn't resist. We were aqua babes, we were aqua chicks, we were aqua bells. The one I loved the most was the aquanauties. <laughs> and I thought at the time, hmm, I wonder if how Neil Armstrong would have reacted to being called an, an astro-hunk. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it would have gone over quite so well. But you know what? We didn't care what they called us, just so we got to go do our thing. I think sometimes when people hear things like this, they feel very overwhelmed. So what can ordinary people do to help fix things? The key is hold up the mirror. What, what am I good at? Is it math? Is it numbers? Is it, do I have a way with kids? Do I have a passion for music? Or whatever. Whatever it is, use your power. Everyone has power. You talk a lot in your story about the headlines that have followed you throughout your career. And I'm curious if you could write a headline for yourself for 10 years from now, what would that headline say? I think the ultimate headline that I would wish is that Sylvia Earle has lived long enough <laughs> to see the turnaround from this time, this great time of decline to leveling off and then ascending in the other direction, that we have come to understand that our lives depend on taking care of nature. That's Sylvia Earle in conversation with Catherine Burns. By the way, we discovered that Sylvia is referred to as her deepness by her friends and colleagues. You can hear more of that interview by going to the Moth website, where you can also pitch your own story. That's themoth.org. That's it for this episode of the Moth Radio Hour. We hope you'll join us next time. And that's the story from the Moth. Your host this hour was Adam Gopnik. Adam is a New Yorker staff writer, and it's been contributing to the magazine since 1986. With the composer David Shire, he's written both book and lyrics for the musical comedy Table, produced by the Long Wharf Theater. The stories in this show were directed by Meg Bowles and Catherine Burns. The rest of the Moss directorial staff includes Sarah Haberman, Sarah Austin Janess, and Jennifer Hickson. Production support from Muj Zaidi and Timothy Lou Lee. Special thanks to everyone at the World Science Festival, especially Tracy Day, Brian Green, and Kate Roth. 
All Stories Are True is remembered and affirmed by the storytellers. Moth events are recorded by Argo Studios in New York City, supervised by Paul Ruest. Our theme music is by The Drift. Other music in this hour from Bill Frizzell. You can find links to all the music we use at our website. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by me, Jay Allison, with Vicki Merrick at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. This hour was produced with funds from the National Endowment for the Arts and is part of the PRX Stories and Science Project supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation 